Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the LLC. First things first, in this age of Facebook and Twitter, I think uh, I've been informed and I have to inform you of the fact that the, um, the Twitter hashtag for this event is LSC Work. So I think that this evening we've got a great program for you. Um, first of all, two eminent speakers, Robert Skidelsky and Morris Glassman, and a topic which I believe is both personal and timely and also transcends the, the current moment. It's personal because, as most of you, we all work. And we probably have an opinion about the value of work and work as a value. It's timely because in this day and age of economic uncertainty, the answer to this question can inform policymaking, labor, labor economic policymaking in particular. This issue or question also transcends the current day and age because it's a question that was left to us by a number of eminent scholars, including John Maynard Keynes, almost 100 years ago. He, in his Economic Prosperities for Economic Possibilities for a Grandchildren's piece, estimated that by about now, we'd be working 15 hours a week. Now, Keynes was very right on the technological improvement and the influence on our productivity, and then hence the multiplying of our economic wealth, but he was very wrong, needless to say, on the number of hours being worked. And I think to help us shed some light on this question, we have two wonderful speakers with us. Let me briefly introduce them to you. On my left here, Robert Skidelsky, who is a member of the House of Lords, um, a, pr um, a very prolific writer, and perhaps best known for his um, amazing series of works on John Maynard Keynes, published between 1980 and 2000. He's continued to be a prolific writer, and most recently he wrote a book with his son, co-author, um, on How Much is Enough, which is a very provocative title. And some of these books, there's a few copies uh, laying outside, and they're available for sale uh, after this event. And Robert has kindly agreed to stay behind a little bit on the podium and uh, sign a few copies if you so like. Um, we also have Maurice Glassman with us. And Maurice is also a member of the House of Lords and also a proactive and a prolific writer and active voice in the policy process. He launched uh, and is the founder of what is called Blue Labour, a movement within uh, the Labour Party who um, endeavours and advocates a return to the basic core values of Labour, essentially pre-1945, if I've understood it correctly. So... Um, before handing it over to these gentlemen, let me briefly explain to you or detail the, the proceedings of tonight, which will be, first and foremost, um, both gentlemen will lay out their case in about 15 minutes each. I will then um, lead a short discussion which we're, in which I'll allow them a right of response to each other's points, about five minutes. Um, time allowing, I'll ask a few questions. But most importantly, I think... I'll open up quickly to you, the audience, for what I expect to be an interesting Q&A. Good. So with that, um, Robert, can I call you to the stage? Thank you. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I've uh, disgraced myself by leaving my talk in the car in which I came. 
so um, uh, I will um, do my best without my script. Um, the question really um, is, why do we work? Um, or more precisely, why do we work uh, uh, as hard as we do? And I think the, you know, the argument could be made that we already have enough, on average, in rich societies um, uh, to work a lot less than we do. Um, and that was the view of Keynes in, in, in a little book, little essay he wrote in 1930 called Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. And uh, Keynes thought that we would be a lot richer than, than in 1930, which has proved to be the case, and that therefore we'd work less, because he regarded work as you know, a cost for obtaining goods and services, and as technology, as, as, as productivity grew, um, we would need to put in less effort to obtain goods and services, the goods and services we wanted. And so he thought there'd be a gradual decline in, in the hours of work. And as, as you said at the beginning, he thought that by now, uh, the grandchildren of 1930, we would be working not much more than 15 hours a week. And that gradually, we'd, we'd move towards a workless world. Technology would bring us to a workless future. And he regarded that as a boon, not as a menace. Um, he talked about technological unemployment growing, and I'll, re I'll, I'll, I'll return to that. Now, of course, we know that hasn't happened. We are richer, but we still work, on average, in the West, somewhere about 40 hours a week, um, a, little, a little less, maybe, in some countries. So the, so the question is, why? Why, why, didn't, why didn't his utopia um, come to pass? And I think there are... Um, five explanations you can toy around, play around with. Two of them spurious, which I'll start with, and the other three deserving of a more serious attention. The spurious ones, the first spurious one is we work as hard as we do because we love it so much. And um, that, I mean, obviously work is a bit more fulfilling than it was, sure. But the evidence is that most people don't actually love their work as much as, uh, nearly enough, uh, to, to uh, be an explanation of the hours worked. Even if they did love their work, um, that doesn't explain why they work 40 hours a week. You know, you can love your work and prefer to work less than that. So I think that explanation is spurious. I mean, the, the, the second spurious explanation is um, that we adore, I know, that we fear leisure. We're terrified of not working. And um, there's some plausibility in it. It's, it. it's very much a boss's view, I think. Um, in fact, when, 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 uh, when workers are asked, they, they all say they'd prefer to work less. And in fact, that was the big demand of the trade unions when the trade unions were powerful. It was always a reduct to reduce reduce the workload. So I think those two are spurious explanations. Now we come to a more serious explanation, which is that we work so hard because we're greedy for more. And therefore, in order to get more, we have to go on working. 
uh, insatiability um, is a fact, I think. And um, it's been tremendously, um, um, it's been tremendously increased as uh, basic needs are satisfied, and we have much more discretion. We start compare, we we compare our fortunes much more uh, with those of others, and we find them wanting. So I think insatiability can't, you know, has to figure somewhere in the explanation. But you, on its own, it it can't be it can't be the explanation for why we go on working uh, as hard as we do because. Because for 4,000 years or so of recorded history, there was no increase of any, of any um, substance in the quantity of goods and services available to every, each person. And therefore, what was happening to insatiability in that period? What was happening to greed? They were obviously under some sort of control. Because you might say, oh, well, if insatiability is a constant, then why didn't we develop the institutions and habits that would have enabled us to satisfy our insatiability? In fact, we didn't. And it, you know, it, it only started to... Um, growth really only started in, in the 18th century. Um, so I think uh, that explanation on its own can't, can't be uh, the right one. So I think we turn from individual psychology to social psychology... And what we, what we have to think about is an institution, capitalism, which un, un, liberates um, greed, liberates the quest for wealth from its previous constraints. And, um, and, and, and it, it does so in, 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 in a number of different ways. And I think there are probably four mechanisms which I would... Um, highlight. I mean, first of all, there is the relentless pressure of advertising. Capitalism is the deliberate organisation of discontent, and, uh, and, 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 and advertising exemplifies that. Um, um. Uh, secondly, and this is a, the good side, a good, good, good aspect of, of, of capitalist civilization. It has vastly increased the range of references, uh, the range of comparison through creating a global society. We get goods from all over the world, goods and services. We compare our fortunes, not just to other people in the town, the local community, but you know, in, in, in the whole nation and then between, between countries as well. So our field of reference has widened enormously, spatially, um, 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 in terms of class. I mean, it's created a much more fluid society and, of course, in terms of communication. So I think, uh, in that sense, it's, it's, um, it's created a dynamism of, 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 of relative wants, which no other social system has achieved in the past. Um, what else? What else? Um, I think uh, the, other, the other aspects of capitalism I would highlight are that it's the first system in the world, social system, in which... The majority of people have lost control over their work. They no longer decide their work, how much to work. That is decided by others. It's decided by, by the bosses. Now, you know, there was a countervailing force for a lot of time, trade unions and democracy, but that has withered away, whittled away. So the determination of how much people work is not really in their own hands. 
the neoclassical myth that um, the hours of work are determined by voluntary bargains between workers and, and employers, um, I think just doesn't hold water. And I think it's contrary to common sense and common experience. And finally, I, I think um, you, you, you've had in the recent past, particularly, vast expansion in inequality of wealth and incomes, which is an expression of the power of, 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 of um, the, the capitalist class um, by virtue of their ownership of the means of production. I mean, and, 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 and the huge influence they wield on government policies. So in all those ways, you have a system which is really geared to um, the, 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 the keeping people at work and offers them um, an increasing cornucopia of consumption as a sort of bribe, in a way. Well... There is a flaw at the heart of this system, a contradiction. Maybe it's the new Marxist contradiction, that the very technological dynamism, which is uh, the, great, um, the great virtue of capitalism, and in, 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 in the name of which it, it produces uh, all these, um, and, and by which it produces this huge expansion um, of the quantity of goods, is also destroying jobs. And it, it privileges work over leisure, but it actually um, destroys the jobs um, uh, uh, which, which um, it, 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 it wants, wants um, destroys the work which it wants people to do. And I think that is a contradiction. Um, uh, because what it uh, faces us with is a workless future. And if there's a workless future and the distribution of income as it now is, then I mean, what are most people to do? Um, the Luddites first raised this uh, question um, in the 1820s when they smashed machines because they suspect, they thought that these machines were a threat um, and uh, they were wrong uh, for the time, but maybe they were just premature. And now, now um, the harvest is being reaped. Now, out from this trap, there are four escape routes, uh, possible escape routes, and I dub them the mainstream escape route, the Glassman escape route, the Schumacher escape route, and the Skidelsky escape route. And I just say, as to highlight this, that the first three keep workers centrally in the picture, whereas our, our escape route is um, to convert technological unemployment into leisure. Now, um, the mainstream view is, well, um, I think this is, I mean, maybe one should call it Schumpet, Schumpeterian in some way. There's a constant process of creative destruction going on. The obsolete is constantly being uh, destroyed, and new forms of, of, of uh, te technology, of business organization, um, are constantly being innovated. And there are a number of, I mean, there are a number of writers in this, in this um, tradition who say we're not going to run out of jobs, provided we innovate.
innovate, continue innovating in organization, provided we increase the productivity of education, whatever that means. We will keep up uh, with, the, uh, with, with, with machines in the race. In fact, two authors said it's not a race against machines, it's a race with machines. To what? To what end? What is the purpose of this race? How long does it go on for? The metaphor of the race I've always found very, very unsatisfactory. The races end. They don't go on and on and on and on and on. Um, and, and you have to ask in the end, what's the purpose of this race? But anyway, uh, these, these uh, authors, and I think this is mainstream, see machines really in a, in a quite benevolent way. Machines are simply there to realize our wishes. We cooperate with the machines. The jobs will come in some way or other, or are rather vague about where they're going to come from. So that's sort of, I think, I would say the way the mainstream work. Human capital, more efficiency. But then they have to admit that, in fact, the new multinationals, um, micro-multinationals, as they're called, actually employ far fewer people than the old multinationals. So I don't think they've got a very convincing solution. Now, the Glassman solution, um, escape route, um, which uh, is, is, I mean, again, work is, 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 I think, at the center of the picture. Work as vocation. Um, um, work, I think, um, the ideas of work uh, influenced by Catholic social philosophy. Um, and how to organize a society um, in which work can be fulfilling. Um, and I think there are a number of um, institutional things. Um, 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 Morris looks a lot at German, the way the German economy works, uh, workers' uh, co-determination procedures, so that he, he feels that, um, or thinks, that provided um, one has that kind of social system in which labor um, plays a big, a big part in the bargaining process. One can restore the balance between uh, workers and, and, and bosses in such a way that work can become satisfied. I mean, I feel he'll obviously talk about this. I, I just have to say that although it's, a lot of that seems to me very valuable, I'm not wholly convinced. Um, I, I, I raise the question of the agency. How is this to come about? Um, or, and even in Germany, wages have been very severely repressed um, uh, for the sake of greater uh, export competitiveness. That's Glassman. Then there's Schumacher. Um, uh, small is beautiful. That's had a very, very, um, very, very big impact in many, many areas. And the basic idea behind that is deliberately to reduce the productivity of labor and thus slow down, in fact, even reverse technical progress, um, uh, and, and revert, in a way, to a kind of artisan type of production and artisan economy, local markets, um, uh, rowback on globalization, um, and in, in that way, rescue work from the threat of the machine. Uh, again, the idea that Buddhist, Buddhist um, elements that influence Schumacher, but also influence um, the, 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 these modern ideas of how work can be made more satisfying in smaller groups. And finally, there's the Skidelsky solution, which is 
to accept technological uh, te technology, to accept the achievements of technology, and convert technological unemployment, which is growing, into leisure. And um, so we, 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 we take advantage, we don't repudiate the machine, we, we simply say the machine has brought us these benefits of much, much greater wealth and prosperity, now let's reap the rewards of it. And that, of course, is in the spirit of Keynes. Now, leisure is not idleness, it's sort of an active, active leisure. It, um, it um, um, involves um, self-directed work which you can't get um, out of, um, really, out of any of these other solutions, I think, because none of them actually um, tackle the question of who owns the means of production. Um, they, they assume you can get a better, better, better type of work without changing um, any, of the, uh, any, of the, uh, any of the basic structures of society. So uh, I think that's, that's what, what I think we come to. In the end, it's partly semantic, isn't it? I mean, work, leisure, there's big gray areas. We can think of a time when work will become more fulfilling um, and leisure become more active and not just a sort of respite from work so that the, the distinction dissolves finally. But we regard it as a very important simplifying device in order to draw the distinction between work that is undertaken for extrinsic reasons and work that is self-directed and undertaken because that's what one wants to do and no one is telling one that one needs to do it. And we have a number of, I'll end here, we have a number of devices to help this reorientation. One of them, very important, we think, is uh, an unconditional basic income, which is a form of redistribution, partly um, to be paid for by, by a progressive consumption tax. We want restrictions on advertising. We want less advertising, and that's uh, mainly a matter of how, how it's financing. We want advertising to become more costly for people who rely on it. And finally, we want limitations on the hours of work. Um, not for all workers, not for all people. Um, I, I, don't, I, don't, I, I don't want to deprive someone of the right of exploiting himself or herself. Um, but I think for, for most people there should be some limitation. We already, have, we already have all these things in embryo. We just have to extend them and therefore reshape uh, our attitudes to uh, the real challenge that we do face, which is um, you know, the, the, the possibility of a workless future. And if we do all that, then I think we might get to the point of realizing Keynes's ideal, which is to use science and technology um, uh, to uh, live wisely, agreeably, and well. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, uh, good evening, and, and really thank you for that. I would have left my paper in the car, but I don't have a car, so <laughs> that it, it really would have happened. And it's also um, thanks to the LSE, and it's lovely to, to be here. Um, I've had a few debates here with Michael Gove and with, with Jesse Norman, and, and we've debated before, hence you know much too much about what I think. 
But um, my fondest memory of LSE is certainly the living wage campaign about eight years ago with London citizens. And in that campaign, we discovered that the London School of Economics was precisely not supposed to be the Chicago School of, of Economics, and we produced the deficiencies of an exclusive reliance on individual utility maximisation as a unit of calculation. And according to the webs, it was supposed to develop a theory of labour value. So it's very nice to be here <laughs> and to try to be true to that. But, but of course, in the LSE, it didn't turn out that way. As we know, and we've got the Deputy General Secretary of the Fabians here, Marcus, it's lovely to see you. The Fabians discovered the state as the instrument of progress, justice and efficiency, and it was not clear where work fitted into that scheme. External redistribution replaced internal negotiation and the balance of power in the firm, and the state became the fundamental agent of change. Caught between the individual maximizer and the collective aggregator, society effectively disappeared from economic calculation as a source of value and was externalized in economist terms as a cultural or historical anomaly that got in the way of maximum efficiency, price equilibrium and just distribution, to use the language of the economics department. The living wage campaign that was here drew attention precisely to the limits of contractual individualism in thinking about work because the cleaners, cooks and security guards here at the LSE, none of which work could be done by machines, um, were a necessary part of the university, but they were denied decent pay and conditions through contracting out, which treated a human being as a disposable commodity. Um, so I, I guess the issue relates to the power of capitalism, which I'll return to, to commodify the, the power of capital and how to build up resistance to that, so that there can be um, a distribution um, which is more amenable to a good society. The discovery that the webs were committed to a living wage, we went through the founding documents of the LSE and discovered, to our amazement, that they actually used the phrase living wage uh, as part of the founding <coughs> documents. A living wage for all Londoners was one of the few fa favours that the Fabians have ever done me. And we won a living wage on the basis that we were being true to the founding vision of this university. Now, working with the students, particularly with the NUS, the Islamic Society and the Christian Union, getting to know the cleaning staff and generating new friendships and alliances was a very good experience. And it's great that Arnie Graf from the Industrial Areas Foundation, who started the Living Wage uh, and taught us so much about how to organise, is here. And we found that not only is the LSE being true to its founding mission in paying it, but also in hosting debates such as this, and, and, and being a forum for public, um, public discussion. That was also part of the vision of the London School of Economics outlined in its founding documents. One of the core features of Blue Labour is that the old is the new, that our past is the future, and finding out what the original mission of an institution is before giving any kind of advice on renewal is fundamental to our approach. I think that under the leadership of Craig Calhoun, the LSE is rediscovering its identity and renewing its mission in London. But it is also the case that this debate about work as a value is of central political as well as economic importance. And I will suggest, as, um, as Lord Skodelsky said, <laughs> that work is a value, that it is a good in itself as well as a source of value, that it is characterised by an internal good, the expertise, experience and excellence of internal accomplishment, doing a job well, 
but also it's an external good in terms of generating value in commodities and the determination of price and wages. So there are two internal goods. Work is both good for people to accomplish something skillfully, to participate in an inheritance of practice. Through work, we participate in the inheritance of our civilization, of knowledge, of science, of technology. It's not simply the case that machines exist externally and produce benefits. You have to create machines, maintain machines, have an internal knowledge of what they are. <coughs> Otherwise, you get estrangement and alienation. So work is both good for people to accomplish something skillfully, to participate in an inheritance of practice and innovate within it. It is also good in terms of an internal practice that is shared between practitioners that nurtures the character of a person. In terms of external goods, there is the generation of value expressed in price. A constitutive feature of any commodity is the quality of labour that is involved in its production. The second external good... (coughs) Pardon me is that the preservation of work in terms of honesty, skill, resilience, cooperation and competitiveness is fundamental to a good society and a good life. So work is a mean through which we renew relationships with each other, with which we appropriate knowledge, inherited knowledge and innovate within it. So I guess the fundamental point I'm coming to is that the political consensus around economics in the past 30, I would say 70 years, has assumed that almost anything other than work generates value. I have been assured by people I respect greatly that capital generates value, that technology generates value, that the state planning generates value, that universities generate value, that even friendship, in the most horrible of terms, human capital generates value. But significant though all these things are, if work, if labour is ignored, then a constitutive and decisive feature of value is ignored. So... Lord Skidelsky referred to comparative analysis, that we, one great thing about capitalism is that it enables an effective comparison. And I will put this idea about the German economy forward in terms of comparative superiority and uh, as a challenge to both um, neoliberal economics and the way that, mother, that economics is taught in terms of individual maximisation and mathematical modelling on the one side and also forms of, of Marxist and in some ways Keynesian economics on the other. So the question is, and the way that this turns out politically as well as as academically, it concerns the argument over the explanation of the comparative superiority of the German model, the German institutional system, in terms of its external competitiveness and its internal economic arrangements, the institutional system. How can it be that the country with the greatest degree of democratic governance in its economy has proved to be the most competitive? How is it possible that a vocational system of labour market regulation has proved to be the most efficient and more efficient than its flexible competitors? How is it that a sectoral and local form of banking survived the crash in so much better shape than competitive asset-maximising banks? And it was indeed Her Majesty the Queen here at the LSE who politely asked why none of her expert economic advisers had predicted the crash. It was really very sweet. She said, why did nobody tell me that this was going to happen? (laughs) Uh, She wasn't really alone in the thought. And I just urge you all to read the letter of response from leading economists. 
it's, a, it's an object lesson of its kind, of how to deny that there is an, an epistemological crisis in your discipline. Because everything was external. Everything was nothing to do with the discipline. It was all to do, once again, with the fact that the world wasn't behaving as it should. And, um, and it brings... What I want to say is that that letter brings to the centre of the argument that any theory of value does, that does not include work as something other than a commodity, a non-commoditized theory of work of labour, as a good that is carried by human beings who flourish when they treat each other humanely, is not going to work. So that is the key Aristotelian insight. So I'm here to praise um, Edward I'm really here to, to, to acknowledge. I think um, Edward Skodelsky is a, a really superb philosopher. And it turns out that there is a need for intermediate institutions that promote virtue, vocation and value within the economy. Um, otherwise, capital will erode trust and constraint, which, are, which you refer to as the insatiability, and Aristotle referred to as the insatiability of desire that a concept of virtue institutionally promoted of vocation um, and of value constrains the insatiability of value and without that you have the circumstances of the crash in which unaccountable greed, recklessness and lying brought us to the brink of ruin. So let's get to capitalism because it's fundamental to, to both of our arguments. And my argument concerning capital is that it exerts tremendous pressure to centralise ownership. There is a tendency to centralise ownership. So there's no reason to believe that if, if um, capital owns the means of production, why they will give us a, a living wage or a basic income. And it also turns labour into a commodity. But I argue, in contrast, that human beings are capable of association, that the human being is not a commodity, that this is what Polanyi, Karl Polanyi used to teach here, called a commodity fiction. The human beings are capable of association, negotiation, learning, expression and improvisation. And these are nurtured by institutions that uphold a non-commodity status for labour within the economic system. Institutions like vocational colleges, unions and works councils play a constitutive role in the preservation and renewal of work, as does academic self-government within universities. I say this because there is a very sustained <coughs> attempt for universities to be run by human resources and the teaching and learning centre, and I'm always urging academics to actually democratically run their own institutions. So labour has the ability to organise itself because it is human. And it turns out that the results are better if labour is recognised as a distinctive human factor of production. Where finance capital or the state asserts sovereignty and labour is subordinated and becomes merely a factor of production, there is exploitation and oppression. And I think that you can say in a place where there's lots of work going on, China, where there is the maximum level of oppression and exploitation, where workers are killed every day when they try to organise themselves into free and democratic trade unions. And I think that it's a very important part of the politics that we show solidarity with free and democratic trade unions in China. So Karl Polanyi's theory of commodification in, in which things that are not produced for sale become available for, at a price, and that includes nature, which, you know, the great thing about working with faith communities and community organising is they didn't believe that the free market created the world. They thought that there was something prior to that. Uh, and that nature is some form of inheritance and not exclusively has a commodity form, which is central to the argument 
But what happens in commodification is things that are not produced for sale, we can think of school playing fields uh, um, as, a, as a specific example of that, or the human being and the human body become available for sale at a price. That's the process of commodification. And I think it's the best point for understanding um, why this particular escape route that I'm arguing for um, is the right one. So I'm arguing that work has a commodity value, as an, has an ethical value and a societal value as a means through which knowledge and good practice are reproduced and renewed. Blue Labour goes further and states that work is definitive of what it means to be a human being. In this, it is true to both Catholic and socialist thought. There are two forms of labour. Just go into it. One is childbirth in labour and the reproduction of life and the attempt, sometimes paltry attempts, that parents make to love and honour their children throughout their life. Labour is, in this sense, definitionally painful. So this begins to approach that life is not a leisurely thing, but the good is also full of pain. Um, so labour, in this sense, is painful, full of grief and sacrifice, as well as occasionally love and grace, not always in equal measure. And the same is true of the other kind of labour, the transformation of the external world and inherited materials, conceptual and material, so as to increase their value. In this view, labour is an inheritance of practice that is embodied in the person and embedded in the institutions that renew knowledge and its practice. That is why I am blue. Work is hard and unyielding. It is frustrating and capricious. And so is love. It is better not to be too progressive in the approach to these things. Things cannot, do not necessarily always get better. To, to quote the 1997 um, Labour Party song. So the reason why I am sceptical about Lord Skidelsky's attempt to reconcile an, reconcile an Aristotelian theory of internal goods and the utilitarianism of Keynes concerns precisely work as a value, or to call it by its traditional name, labour value. Keynes, by concentrating on the money supply and macroeconomic countercyclical external intervention, the collective aggregator mentioned earlier, and combining this with the individual maximizer of classical theory, had no conceptual or institutional space for intermediate institutions, firms, regions, traditions, vocations, and labour itself as a source of value. So external stimulus jolted the system back to work, but the source of value, work and its quality, and the conditions for resisting commodification and generating that value, i.e. institutions with status that could defend labour from becoming a commodity, defined as a sellable thing without relationships or a history, without knowledge or a character, replaceable and dispensable, and defined exclusively by its price, is missing from the theory. So there's just a massive space between the state and the individual agent in, in Keynesian theory that needs to be filled out. Institutions that preserve the status of human beings and knowledge within the economy were not a part of the story. And that is why Keynesianism in itself does not provide the alternative political economy that we need. He was right about many things, not least in his critique of usury, which is a magnificent condemnation of Wonga and the money shop, which I think that we should definitely renew. He's also, he was also right about the origins of the gold standard being found on the gold reserve stolen by Sir Francis Drake on the Golden Hind. I made a very good, very, very <coughs> correct calculation. And he's also right about the necessity of counter-cyclical spending during a recession. 
The problem lies with the institutional arrangements required to generate value and emerge from recession in which, other than a few enigmatic allusions in Chapter 23 of the general theory, there is not very much between the Treasury and the individual, the market and the state. That is why I sometimes use the phrase Viagra economics, for the question remains, what do you do when the stimulus wears off? Where do you go from there? So we are at a moment when we don't need more of the same, but something different and better. So the list of characteristics of the good life suggested in Lord Skodelsky's book, How Much is Enough, um, include neither work nor politics. And that indicates, as far as uh, my perspective is concerned, that there is a problem with how to resist domination and uh, the role of power and the role that power plays within the economy and within politics. Part of a good life is not to be dominated by the rich and powerful, and that can only be done through asserting the necessity of recognising labour as a value so that the people who do work, the people who do do the cleaning and the cooking and the security and who care for, for our parents, the people who go to work and have to go to work, um, are treated humanely, and that involves other things that defines human beings, that human beings can get together and change things through the power of association. So this power of association is fundamental to, the, to resisting the domination of, of capital, but also asserting the organisation of labour. So politics is part of good life too, although I can tell you that it doesn't always feel that way. It was Aquinas and Catholic social thought that brought the virtues into the economy. So that's, they built on Aristotle, but it was, the, it was the Christian virtues that actually brought economic virtue into central play, which, is, which has been well-developed by Alistair McIntyre, among others. And they, they made the economy the centre ground rather than leisure and, and developed the most complex and compelling account of a non-statist market system characterised by balance of power and private property in which work, vocation, retained its status. So the, the alternative to work was rest. That's what trade unions wanted, was rest. And that was, the, that was where there was an alliance between the church and labour in, initially, just working around a day of rest, a Sabbath day. Laborum Exercens, published in 1989 is a masterpiece that I recommend as a compliment to anyone who reads the general theory on human work. In philosophy, as I say, McIntyre has done the most important work in developing the idea of virtue as a serious modern concept, but it has to be acknowledged that it has been the popes in their encyclicals who have best developed the concept of virtue in the economy. So to come to the conclusion, in the escape routes that Lord Skodelsky outlines... um, one of them is a pre-modern green vision. The Schum- it's the Schumacher. So the Schumpeter and Schumacher. Wow. Um, those two, I've got to get them in order. But, it, but in the shoot, there's a pre-modern green vision which is rejected as, as utopian. And the alternative that the Lord Skodelsky puts is a technological leisure-based society in which we are all, in effect, aristocrats with time to pursue the good. It's very important to notice that what Aristotle, who was very hostile to high interest rates, was also very hostile to usury. The political economy of Athens was that there were effectively two economies. There was the territorial economy, which had very fixed yield, very strong labour protection, 
And then there was the maritime economy. This is where London fits in under Rome, where there was free contractual exchange. So it turns out that the aristocrats um, earned their leisure effectively through a capitalist contractual system that was effectively invisible. The contracts were burned um, after the voyage was made. So a maritime economy on cargo and insurance. We, we can return to that point. But the assumption is that there is no way back to the local, to relationships, to a sense of place, to solidarity, to earning and belonging within human-scale institutions and economies. And that is why I raise the issue of the German economy, for it is important for it indicates that this modernist choice is false. It turns out that relational accountability, vocational institutions, regional banks that are constrained to, to work in the area that they are, has actually succeeded to domesticate the destructive power of capital while harnessing its creative power. Keynes would say it's demonic force to uproot, maximise and exploit. The organisation of labour and of place, as well as faith traditions, so central to the living wage campaign here at LSE, play a central role. Now, there's plenty more to say, but I'm very aware by the look on the chair's face that I've used up my time. So I just want to thank LSE and thank Lord Skidelsky for continuing this debate. Thank you. We're only about 50% over time, so we're good. Um, I shall still give you that right of response to both gentlemen, but please keep it relatively brief. Um, Robert, will you? Well, I will, I will keep it brief. Um, uh, Morris says that I don't talk about politics, and he doesn't talk about technology. <laughs> that's, that's as brief as it could be, isn't it? There's more in your notes, though. <laughs> what? There's more in your notes. Yeah, but I mean, that, let that develop, yeah. maybe, <laughs> as, as, as time gets on. It's not my last uh, arrow. Because <laughs> <laughs> the strategic political players you can tell. Um, Morris. And I would say that um, the technology is generated through the appropriation of inherited knowledge by labour practice, the innovation within technology, the understanding of how it works, is an aspect of labour, not of leisure. And so, therefore, technology itself is to be understood as a human construct um, with, with exactly the same power as capital, the power to, to, for creative and destructive. And the control of technology is inconceivable without recognising the constitutive role of labour in generating it. That's my initial response. Yeah, but technology is destroying jobs. I mean, I think, uh, I think that's the premise of the argument. Therefore, to make jobs or work the centre of the future seems paradoxical. Um, how is technology to be um, tamed? Um, its uh, rate of increase is exponential. There's something called Moore's Law, um, which... Um, talks about the, the rate of increase, uh, rate of expansion of the internet. I mean, there, there, there are lots of, lots of studies now which suggest that it, the rate of technological change has speeded up enormously mm -hmm. in the last 20 or 30 years, and it is at the expense of jobs. Now, it may be that one can sort of um, 
cooperate with technology in some way. But I think it's, a, it's just a paradox to say, well, at this point in our evolution, let's um, reassert the centrality of work when work is disappearing, at least in, in the traditional form. Um, and um, I agree. I mean, you might want new definitions and all, new, 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 new concepts of what work is. But in, it, in the form in which it has taken place, which is jobs, that you start in the morning and end at, end at five or six at night, and you go on doing this all week, and it's a 40-hour, and then you have add-ons, holidays, they get a bit longer, sure, that's all. But in that sort of, I mean, in that shape, I don't think that points to our future. And, and, and two points to make. Um, the first is um, that obscures the, the fact that there's been um, huge investment in job creation in China, for example, in globalization, that is not exclusively a function of technology. It's also a function of lower labor costs in other parts of the world, yeah. which, which can be accessed. So it's not a simple uh, technological determinism that it's work, but it's about rates of return and levels, you know, levels of profitability. And it is not the case in, in, in a country like China that there is, there is a decrease in employment, there is a massive boom of employment. That, that's just one side. Second, to acknowledge and completely embrace the idea that there's new forms of work um, emerging. And that has to be the case if there's going to be quality in the, in the game. So the understanding of, of, of the technology to, to work within it, to be able to innovate, is not an external, but has to involve an internal appropriation of that. Um, I think that's hugely important. But then there's also the whole area of an enormous increase in work, which we devalue by calling it the service sector. So there is also a vocation in caring for others. That's, that's an enormous part of what things are going to be. Um, you mentioned, and there's huge creative possibilities of, of the young caring for the old, the old teaching the young, um, that, that new forms of work are going to be generated through relationships and, and, and by the skill and craft and virtue of how we treat each other. Now, if these are going to be degraded, if these are going to be dominated by, by either state or public sector management in terms of profit and utility maximisation, then we're going to have a very nasty... Um, instrumentalized future but it needn't be that way so what's necessary is to resist the domination of capital and the state through the organization of 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 labor itself and to recognize that labor um, in all forms of of ways that we actually serve each other yeah i mean service economy has has been relatively resistant to the march of technology but it's not any longer and many, many service jobs are being automated. I mean, and uh, that, that accounts partly for the phenomenon of the squeezed middle class or the squeezed professional class. I mean, you've got to introduce redistribution very centrally into any, 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 any picture of making uh, conditions in the future um, more, more, amen you know, more, 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 um, Hospitable to even the caring uh, mm -hmm. professions, um, because um, uh, with with no productivity gains, um, they don't justify 
um, there, you know, an increasing share of, 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 of productivity, which is, which is really what, what, we, what we expect from mm-hmm. technological progress. Um, so I, I, I think there, there are huge problems in, in re, reconfiguring work in such a way that it yields people um, a decent, a decent um, uh, standard of living and gets rid of this um, constant tendency for, the, for median incomes to stagnate and in fact drop, whereas the rich race ahead. I mean, that seems to me a huge, huge issue which, which the left are not facing because they feel um, that um, there are no votes in redistribution. But without some idea of redistribution, I mean, I don't see how um, the, the politics of your, your escape route are going to work. So, so very roughly, I, I know that, that people want to come in, but there's, there's got to be pre-distribution as well as redistribution, which doesn't really mean yeah, anything yeah, to anybody, but uh, I'm kind of obliged to say that. Um, but also... But also, I, I really think the redistribution of power is as vital How'd as the redistribution. How do you get it? Well, this is how, historically, it's always been the case that people get it, through association, through politics, through the recognition of dependency, like we did it here with the living wage. It's, the LSE completely refused to pay the living wage on efficiency grounds, that there was more money for research <coughs> if the cleaners and the cooks and the... And the and the security guards were contracted out. It was a straightforward economic calculation, and that was based on academic goods. So the less we pay on workers, the more we can give to to academics to, to not do their research. So that was the fundamental argument. Now, then it turned out that, that people have to eat, that the rooms have to be cleaned, that the quality of that relationship was not best served by the university by having an excluded, proletarianised, de-skilled, absentee workforce, that there was necessary work and that, therefore, you re- we reconstituted the corporate body. This happened at, at Queen Mary's it was, as well. It was, it was a really big fight. But what happened in Queen Mary's, they stopped the contracting out. It happened here. They brought the cleaners and the cooks and the security guards back in, and then there could be pathways then there could be a genuine progression in a life from that work. But the point being to respect is, is that there is a dependency on the work being done, which is magicked away by contracting out, nothing to do with us, we have no... So it's to reassert um, well, accountability and mutual dependence in the political economy, that it's not yeah. the simply the case that technology exists outside of, of class relations and social relations... And it's not the case that there's an infinite, you know, replacement of commodity forms and that's the best way to treat people. It turns out that treating people decently and recognising them and recognising not an equality of status but a necessary mutual status between manual work and academic work leads to a better university. Could I just make one last comment? I mean, I think we're both evading the problem in a way. Yeah. I mean, um, I, 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 I acknowledge I, I have, um, I have pro- huge problems with, with, with conceptualising how you deal with power. I mean, at the moment, we've got a minimum wage economy for... Um, I mean, all these cleaners who we should be treating as decent people, they're all, they're all, they're all on minimum wage, wages. All of them, all of them, throughout the country. I don't know what's happening at the LSE. In fact, a large number of people 
their wages are subsidized because um, they, 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 their value to their employers it doesn't actually uh, give them a living wage. We, we have huge wage subsidy um, in, in this country with, with millions of people actually being paid, paid to paid to go on working. Uh, now, okay, you can, deal, you can deal with that in various ways, but you know, that is again a power issue. And I, I think, um, I, I do recognise it as a, as a huge problem. And I think, Morris, I think your talk of association sort of tends to sort of slide off into some sort of soft, soft form. Oh, um, how sweet of you <laughs> to... Uh... <laughs> so long since I've been described as soft that I'm going to, I'm going to relish it. So there's um, state power, right? There's, there's market power, money power, and that eff- effectively works very, very briefly, and I really don't want this to be um, a lecture in terms of contract and immediate exchange between hands, discrete, and redistribution through the state, which is a centralisation and, and then distribution out of that. And, and then there's the possibility that has existed of society, which is based on reciprocity. Now, individual workers, this is just the truth of the, of the labour tradition. I think it's also a truth of the Catholic tradition. Of, of, of a Christian inheritance as well is, is that you cannot do it on your own that through association and through the building of institutions through organising you can create a, a shared power it used to be called, I don't want to be too extreme you, this used to be called democracy but you know, I, I, don't, I don't want to be you know, typecast as outlandish now <laughs> And that people get together, and you know, Aristotle said, you know, what is what is politics? You know, it's the way that we protect the people and the places that we love. Now, throughout history, there's been an attempt by elites, particularly financial elites and educated elites, to dominate people's lives and rule them. Now, the only means of resisting that has been through democratic association. So far from far from soft, it's actually quite a tension-ridden, quite quite anxiety-inducing kind of activity. That's what we had to do here, because basically what the university said was anybody who joins this living wage campaign is going to be sacked, right? So there has to be ways, and that's where I just really want to acknowledge again the role of the Islamic Society, the Christian Union, and the National Union of Students in showing solidarity with those workers and making the argument that the traditions of the LSE were best served. So between the collective and the individual there's, it's back to the Keynesian point there's some space of organising to do and democratic organising and that's the key point with the political economy position Thank you, thank you gentlemen um, I'll open it up soon <laughs> but I want to take advantage of asking these gentlemen one quick question myself I had a list but there's one that's really on top of my list um, We've talked about the past. Uh, we've just mentioned Keynes again. We've analyzed the, 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 the current situation. But can I ask both of you gentlemen the, perhaps to make this, the same bold jump, leap forward as Keynes did now almost 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. I can ask you both to have, give us a sense of what our grandchildren's future would be like in terms of working hours. If I were to ask you the same question that Keynes asked himself, what would you come up with? What, what, what do you think, at the turn of the 22nd century, we'd be looking at in terms of a work week? Robert? 
Well, I think that one of the things that will happen, and it's, it's inevitably going to happen, is that some of the dis sharp distinction between work and leisure is going to dissolve. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm quite happy to admit that a lot of work will become more vocational, more um, uh, caring, um, and, and give more intrinsic satisfaction than most work does now. But there is still a crucial distinction, I think, which is that leisure one thinks of as a self-chosen form of activity, whereas work um, is actually chosen, I mean, is, 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 is not self-chosen. I mean, you, you don't have a, you don't have a, a choice, of, a free choice of jobs or how, much, how long to work. Um, and it, it, in other words, part of, the, part of work as it's organized is, is, is extrinsic to the wishes of, 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 of the people involved. And that's, that problem's got to be overcome um, completely um, or very largely if you are to then say, well, the distinction between work and leisure is no longer of any use. And in, 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 uh, in, in 100 years' time, that may happen. But I don't quite see how it's going to happen. Thank you. OK. Maurice? Well, I, I just want to go back. I think, I think that there are huge political choices before us. That's the issue. The, my essential argument is that both the market and state roads have run out of road, that we're, that we're at the end and that the, the crash signified that we're either going to have a future that's dominated um, by the rich and by the um, university-educated, essentially administering the lives of the poor who, who will have to continue to, to work in this proletarianised, degraded and estranged sense um, in order to sort of look after their children, you know, clean their houses and the other things that they want people to do with that. Or, we're going, or we have to conceptualise the power of association. And this is the idea of vocation. Now, the, the idea of vocation, with the reason it, inter, it, it intersects with your conception of freely chosen activity, in vocation there's an idea of a calling, so that people can choose what they do. But then work is paradoxical. Work is simultaneously a site of a grief, and it's a site of creativity. And it's not, yeah. and, and the choice. So, what we'll have to do is be a bit more blue, recognize that the working life is not a means of self chosen free expression, but it's a work of, of um, inheritance and relationship with others, and to democratize that. But, Maurice, can I push you? Will it happen? Well, this is the issue. You know, I could say, you know, it, it can happen, is what I'm saying. Um, if you look at the we have to recognise that there have been very significant changes in the world that have come about by people getting together and actively displaying solidarity one with the other and defending the good. That is a huge, long story. And then people get the result and then they basically, you know, contract it out. You know, you do it for us, particularly if you've done a PPE degree at Oxford, you, you all. But we've got to recognise the responsibility that we have daily. That's the part of the blueness to hold elites to account, to build our relationships and our solidarity. And do I think it will happen? I don't think we've got much choice. Thank you. Uh, I have to say I was hoping for a bit more sort of a, a concrete answer of about five hours a week or something. But no. Um, <laughs> well, the working week. It's not going to end there. Um, good. All uh, right. Th just to say, this is the point. I mean, what, what are we doing, Robert? I mean, so tomorrow you're going to Baku. 
I'm going to just let you know I've got a very, very early flight to Berlin. I guess neither of us are, are being paid straightforwardly to do this, to, to, to talk, to argue. This is a kind of vocation. Now, it's not a leisure. It's the result of a huge number of years of really painful, very boring time in libraries. And, and, <laughs> and really, it's wonderful not to be in them anymore. I, um, I, I, yeah, oh, yes, fine. I, but I don't, I don't see the element of vocation in making pret-a-manger sandwiches, um, which are... A large number of uh, people yeah. in this country are engaged in doing. And when I read on, when I read on on the packets of Pret a Manger, these sandwiches are lovingly made by passionate chefs. <laughs> I just think that's a form of business propaganda, yeah, pure and it, simple. It, it's and, pure, and yet, it's, and yet, a lot of those jobs are slowly going to disappear. Um, there, but at the moment, it doesn't seem to me there's any vocational element in them whatsoever. Yeah, and and lots of jobs yeah, are like that. There's a huge amount of corporate propaganda um, going on in the private and the public sector. That's why it's absolutely vital that organised workers, and I think that there's got to be a broad alliance here, the trade unions have got to make a huge change. They've disappeared from the private sector. I mean, virtually. I mean, trade unions are strong in the public sector. The public sector is a valuable resource for an economy, and they're quite strong there, and they defend workers' rights. But in the private sector, they have disappeared, and their disappearance was deliberately planned in the 1980s. That's why manufacturing was destroyed. And that's why Germany is a very good counter-model, because there is serious private sector. I agree. Germany is wonderful. No, no, well, I... (laughs) That's not what I'm going to say when I go tomorrow. (laughs) I don't don't think it's wonderful. I think it's a very good counterexample of of where it's going to go. And the important thing is, if you looked at it from abroad, who are you going to learn from? Germany or Britain, when it comes to a political economy? Where does the future lie? The world is is learning from America, and that has been the case for the last 20 or 30 years. Economics? And I think that might be moving. Well, maybe it's over that. I mean, that period, maybe. Well, we'll keep this momentum going shortly. Um, All right, we'll open it up, because I know there's a lot of fingers already sort of going up. Uh, We shall take three questions uh, as a set. Um, So, gentlemen, um, pick up your hands. Um, um, But, as I like to say, a good question is short to the point and and finishes with a question mark. That's the definition of a question. Um, so please keep it short to the point and with a question mark at the end. Um, we'll take uh, three from down here, and then I'll move up to the right and to the left. Um, the, um, the gentleman here, the, the lady there with the glasses, I'll put the gentleman here with the, with the white shirt first. Hello. Um, yeah, my question is, in a society with, um, where technology helps um, increase the share of leisure in people's life, um, the returns to technology, the monetary returns to technology, are quite limited to um, a certain share of the population. Um, so it seems that the inequalities uh, would tend to increase in that sort of society. So that would require quite a lot of redistribution in that sense. And, I wonder how you would see attitudes towards redistribution changing um, towards a society like this. So, a uh, lady in the back with the, the glasses. Here comes a mic. The microphone arrives. Um, this is for Professor Skidelsky. You said in your speech at the start that um, 
that you thought that one of your um, methods for improving the system would be to make advertising more costly and to put limits on advertising. But don't you think that that could kind of damage small, medium-sized businesses, damage their chances of doing well if big corporations were able to pay up this money, able to advertise, but these smaller companies were not able to do so? So wouldn't that just mean that um, these larger companies would become even even bigger? That's a very good question. So um, the, the gentleman here with his pen up. You can pass it along, please. Thank you very much. Very enjoyable. Peter Hanley, a question for both. is: I used to live on a community uh, of a submarine, and it had a defined purpose, and we had technology and labour. And what I hear tonight is almost like an impasse between technology and labour. We're not quite sure which way to go. As an engineer, we used to decide, why do I want that technology? And then you'd ask another question, why do I want that labour? Is that not something we should be asking before we discuss value? Actually, why we want the individual components of what we talked about tonight? Good, very well, thank you. Um, Robert, are you happy to... Yeah, um, um, I, I entirely agree with, with, with the first question. I mean, um, technology um, productivity gains in the last 30 years particularly, and partly with the disappearing, disappearance of the countervailing forces, have been appropriated by, um, by a small minority. Um, and hence you get this uh, increased variance um, um, of, of earnings and wealth. And the way we're setting about recovery is actually going to accentuate that. We're going to get back to a very unbalanced economy because that's what, that's what the effect of quantitative easing really is. I mean, it's pouring money into the coffers of those who already own assets. And, and so that sort of tendency to growth of inequality of wealth and income is going to accentuate, uh, and, th and that, that will lead to the next crash. Um, so I, I agree entirely with, 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 with the question. It's even worse than that, because, I mean, this elite define what technological progress is. I mean, a huge amount of technological innovation for which they claim huge rewards has been totally wasted. It hasn't been anything to do with increasing wealth. It's been simply um, a circle of finances, swapping titles and sort of developing financial instruments, which actually um, 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 even Adair Turner said represented so social waste on a colossal scale. So I agree. I mean, there, there, there's a big problem there. Advertising, would advertising damage small-scale businesses? I mean, the ad I mean most, of the, most of the advertising that does damage, damage really, is by actually large, large... Um, a large uh, companies advertising on television, um, and I think uh, I, I think um, you'd have to sort of find out where where the, the real damage of advertising comes from. I mean, small and medium-sized businesses were perfectly capable of selling their products when we had full employment between 1945 and 1970. There were many, and and what's happened since then is that there's been a relentless assault on our senses and on our imaginations and on our greed by large large corporations just advertising 24 hours a day, and it's now spread to the internet as well. I mean, 
these are these are big boys. They're not small and medium-sized <laughs> businesses, I don't think. And the technology labor impasse. Um, yeah, but the, the, the thing is, fine. I mean, we still need human beings um, to, 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 to invent the machines and to run them, but less and less of them. Um, because that's what, that's what um, automation means. I mean, we're automating many pro- processes continually that once required human labor. And there's no obvious stop to that. That's why when I talked about Schumacher, um, he actually believed in deep product, I mean, reversing productivity, so that actually there's more work for people to do. Um, And I don't think that's right. I don't think we can uninvent the wheel. I think it's there, and it's going to go on. And we can bring certain bits of it under control, and under social control, I think financial innovation should be brought under severe social control. I was once having this argument with someone who's just won a Nobel Prize, um, Schiller, Robert Schiller, and I said, I want, I want less productivity in financial services, not more. And he looked very puzzled. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, and I, and I think it's just important to note that uh, a huge amount of that was not anything to do with productivity, was, but, that, but it was speculative gains yeah, um, on yeah, the whole yeah, uh, sure. based on false accounting. So um, a, a very sort of technical phrase for it was criminal activity. So um, it's very – so nobody – I think this goes to the heart of it. Nobody, Robert, is thinking of, of um, whatever that would mean, reinventing or uninventing the wheel – it's about the conceptualization of, of, of the relationship between knowledge, inherited knowledge, good practice, and technological innovation. And that, so I just want to begin, begin right here. So we've got very big issues, conceptual. There's no impasse. I just want to say, as far as I've, I'm, I completely embrace the technology, what I reject is the idea that technology is somehow outside of human agency, knowledge, and control. That's the key. So, so the submarine is a kind of perfect, perfect example of the absolute dependency between technology and human relationships, and then the virtues required. What you don't want in a submarine is someone who doesn't know what they're doing, someone who's morally selfish, right? These are huge issues of virtue and vocation going on in the working life. Now, what I'm saying is that the future of work is absolutely based on those qualities, so, and that there must be, there is, there are, and so there must be ways in which, as people grow in their lives, they move from menial work. So one of the big conversations that that I get involved with, and I get into terrible trouble, but this is a university, and I'm allowed. So I said, well, why don't we close down half the universities in the country and turn them into vocational colleges? I'm not specifying which universities. So. On the basis that we've had an idea of an inheritance that's completely conceptual and abstract and nothing to do with the actual inheritance of practical knowledge. And so that's completely related to to immigration issues too, that we don't have the internal skills, so we have to bring people who who have them. And to concentrate precisely on how to build and mould new technologies. So the future of work, I'm arguing, is not going to be individually self-directed, but it is going to be hugely a form of self-exploitation is going to go on, that people are going to have to give a lot more and, and that unions are going to have to partner up in preserving and teaching as well as in the, the general um, strategic development. So I just wanted to clarify that was, that was great. But I think just think about when you're in a submarine, you, know, you, you don't want to be working with someone who basically wants to have a cigarette and, and, and clock off. Um, 
That, that's uh, and just and just very briefly, this relates absolutely to the first question, which is that we have to think about how to pass on te- the technological inheritance and knowledge. That's related to this question, that it can't be that there's a esoteric elite that have the knowledge that people don't have access to. And, and you know, it goes back to the virtue with the, with the advertising. When there's direct sort of incitement to insatiability, I think this is what you're talking about, Robert, where advertising just preys on uh, unfulfillable, insatiable desire. Um, there, there's got to be countervailing institutions that, 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 that honour ideas of, of faithfulness, of moderation, of goodness, and that's not inconceivable. Maybe those things should be things like schools. Um, I'm going to take a second round of questions from upstairs. Um, <laughs> the um, gentleman in the white shirt and the glasses right there. Oh, um, please state your name. All right. It's Pete Comley. I'm a finance author. Question for Robert. Um, one thing you didn't mention as a reason why we're all still working 40 hours is debt. Over the last 40 years, personal debt has absolutely mushroomed. Is that not contributing to people still having to work 40 hours a week? Second question, um, the gentleman with the the striped T-shirt in the middle. Stephen Reid from the New Economics Foundation. just wanted to ask the speakers whether they are aware of steps towards a basic income happening in Switzerland, the, the referendum that, that may be happening there in a couple of years' time, and then particularly ask, ask the Lord Glassman what his opinions are on universal basic income. Mm-hmm. Um, the gentleman with the glasses up front on the second row. Thank you. Hi, ben McNamee. Um if technology is destroying or will destroy jobs, is it wrong to be raising and abolishing retirement ages? Is it, is it right to be what? Is it right to be uh, um, raising or abolishing retirement ages? Okay. Good. Three very good questions. Who wants to start? I'll go with it. Morris. So, thank you, Pete, uh, on, on debt. So I think this is the, uh, this is the, fundamental, the fundamental issue about why we have to change. So what we've had systematically over the last 30 years, I would say, is the relentless um, debt economy with, because there was a lack of attention to value and particularly labour value. So we weren't, we weren't generating any value through production. We were just doing it either through speculative financial means or through public administration. And it's precisely that alliance between the City of London and Westminster that needs to be changed and changed fundamentally through decentralisation, through vocation, through virtue. So I just want to say, and the, and the crucial statistic, and I'm, I'm always sorry to give statistics, particularly when I'm talking within economics departments, because you never know where it's going to end. The slippery slope argument kicks in. But of the 1.6 trillion invested in the British economy between 1997 and 2007, 84% of that was in mortgages or personal loans. We haven't fully comprehended the extent. So what there is is a massive explosion of debt. Now, this is where capital comes in. So I think part of the good life should definitely be an interest rate cap. You know, that's one side. But that doesn't answer the question of where's the access to capital going to come from. 
So I really want to acknowledge the role of Archbishop Welby with the idea which we're trying to do in Salford of a partnership between churches and unions to build new new banks um, based on, you know, the city of Salford will put their pension fund through it. There will be money from, from the pension funds of Unite and the church so the capital can be made available at non-usurious rates, alternative force forms of capital. So debt has always done, this is from the Catalan conspiracy, this is what I said about democracy. Democracy is the only way of resisting debt because what happens is, is that there's increasing concentration of power in the hands of the rich, of what Robert Skidelsky called very generously a small minority. I think they're very small minority, concentration of that power. And because the world is commodified, people desperately need the money to live and they don't earn enough. Uh, and, and so they're, they're put into this situation of going to usurious moneylenders, which then gets worse. So the, that's why I'm arguing that the situation is that we've run out of road with the state market. State market has got to be the generation of value, and that value has got to be based on labour and work within the economy. So I think that, that's kind of, of, of where we are. Um, so, so, so basic income, you know, I've... I've you know, Philip Van Parais, I've, I've had a 20-year argument. So I'm for the living wage, you know. I think I've made that clear so far. That I, I think that it's important that there is an active recognition of dependence on others through work. Um, and that that's, that's, that's the way that, that, that we should go. Uh, and, and just to share with Ben, I know we're coming to the end of the evening, so I'm going to try and be, be quick about it. But I've, no, I've noticed that nobody who really has power and enjoys their work and does it ever retires. I just noticed, and I'm surrounded by old people. The House of Lords is a very good example, one of the few places in the world where old people still have some status and respect. And, and you know, they don't say, oh, it's not for me anymore. They, you know, it's, it's, get it's stuck known in. as life after death, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> but, but what we really need to have is a life after debt. And, um, and, and that's the... But do you agree the, with the, that? Yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's fantastic. It, it, it does give some vague meaning to being born again, I think. So, um, you know, or, or, or as we came, you know, elevated. My children think they thought that meant levitated. But, um, but the, the crucial thing is how we treat the old is, is disgraceful. So what you'll find in politics, everybody goes, we're the young, the young, the young, the young. But the crucial thing is we've got a whole wealth of experience and understanding and old people are excluded from power and status in the economy. So I'm for the absolute abolition of retirement age. And um, I you know, go further. We started this thing, this will be the last thing I say. You know, there's this thing, teach first, which is the idea that you've got to get you know, young, excellent graduates into schools. Well, we started this thing called teach last, you know, which, is, which is basically to get our elder people into schools where, they can, where they, they're honoured and they've got something to teach. So it's not just about, again, get away from legal measures exclusively. It's not about the abolition of the time any more than it's about exclusively about anti-usury rates. It's also about building relationships and institutions that honour virtue and the good, and, and honouring the old is one of the highest forms of the good. 
Yeah, debt. I think I, I, I don't think you're quite right, Morris. I mean, the problem wasn't that debt was too, you know, that loans were too expensive. If anything, they were too cheap. I mean, there was sort of huge um, um, uh, explosion of cheap credit um, in 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 the nineteen in the two thousands, and um, uh, that that got you know got people hooked on 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 borrowing and. I mean, that has an international dimension because it's about the relationship between China, the United States, and, and, and Europe. And it also has an internal dimension because I think, I think cheap credit was a sort of new type of social contract um, which um, offset the decline of, of, of the welfare state and the decline of median wages. Yeah. I mean, people were trying to keep up a certain standard of living. Their wages were, 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 were stagnant. And so they got more and more into debt in order to consume what they had been led to believe was was the standard standard um, consumption of people um, like them in society, and and cheap credit was a sort of way of finessing that the problem of declining uh, or stagnant uh, stagnant earnings and the ratio of of debt to earnings just ex- exploded. I mean, it was usually thirty forty percent. It then became over a hundred percent. And um, uh, so I, 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 I don't think usury comes into into that equation. And today, of course, I mean, you know, you can. I mean, interest rates are very, very low. Um, so I'm I'm anti usury. I think there's a very good point about usury, but I I, I think it needs to um, uh, get a different a different explication. I mean, the Swiss. Proposition. One of the great things about Switzerland, a good and bad thing, is that they do have referenda. And that is a direct. That is a way people can actually um, take a view on, on 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 the direction of their society. And there is a proposition now um, before the Swiss, um, which is to pay um, a, an unconditional citizen's income of about twelve thousand euros a year. Now, twelve thousand eight hundred to be precise. And that is quite a large. That is quite a large sum. It won't be passed. Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a very, very big straw in the wind. It got 100,000 signatures. Um, uh, there's another proposition which um, may have a better chance of being passed, which is to cap um, the, the um, wages uh, of, of, of CEOs. Uh, it's called a, a month for a year. Um, uh, basically, they can't be more than 12 times what, what the lowest paid worker gets in their companies. So that's another proposition, which has a slightly better chance of being passed, but it won't be passed either. Um, but, the, of course, business is hugely against both. On the one hand, they say it will cause everyone and all business to flee Switzerland. And on the other hand, of course, they're against the, the, the unconditional basic income on the grounds that it's unaffordable. Um, but still, I mean, I wish we had something like that, because that is actually the only way democracy can work uh, at a national level in modern times. It, it doesn't work really through the competition between political parties because uh, basically they're the same. Now, um, the third point about retirement, retirement age. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I agree with that. I think. Um, I think. I think work should be much better distributed over people's lifetime, and therefore, and that, and that of course implies leisure would be should be as well. 
Thank you. Um, we're running slightly out of time, but um, I think we have time for two more questions. Um, one from below, one from up. Um, the, the lady there with the, the, the T-shirt with stripes on it. Oh, just wait for the microphone. Although I didn't make get the assistance very easy with picking in the middle. Thanks very much for your presentations. I have a question to both speakers. Uh, what I heard so far was a very much first world perspective that we have. Can you? Can you? First uh, world. I can't see and I can barely hear. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> can you keep it up? Or can you yeah. put it a bit higher? I'll try it. Uh, thanks very much for both speeches. What I've heard so far was a very much first-world perspective. When we have the technology that has consequences for technological unemployment, how would the perspective change if we were to take into account the rest of the world and see the dynamics in labor productivity there and also the patterns of structural unemployment there? Thanks very much. Very good question. Um, the uh, lady with the, the orange T-shirt on the third row. Hi, uh, Giselle Corey. I'm an analyst at Think Tank called the Resolution Foundation. Um, this is for, for uh, both speakers. Um, talking very much um, uh, about change um, as if it will affect us all. We've talked about groups at the edge of society. Um, but actually what we know about um, change in the labour market is that it's um, immensely uh, dependent on the kind of job you have. And actually it's a hollowing out of middle skill jobs with um, jobs at the bottom and top end um, uh, of skills still there and that's mainly due to technology but a lot of other factors too so could you um, perhaps put the projections you were making earlier about what we're going to expect in the future um, in the context of how it affects those different groups in society Thank you um, Boris? Okay, I, I can sense I certainly would like a cigarette but I, I sense a general desire to, to, to leave so I'll be, I'll be, very, I'll be very quick so in terms of the, I kind of mentioned China, and um, this is not said defensively, is that there's very brutal systems of capitalist exploitation going on, lack of organisations that, that can resist it, um, greater, returns of, greater returns on investment, less institutional and organisational protection. So I, I think it's absolutely vital that there is a very strong internationalism renewed, certainly within my tradition, the labour tradition, um, based around these ideas of vocation virtue. So, for example, thinking about the establishment and endowment of regional banks so that, local, so that local economies have a resilience that's not completely dominated by multinational companies. But what that requires is a reaffirmation of work and politics and democratic politics as absolutely central. This is not exclusively a policy-based economic issue. There has to be organised interests... That, that can negotiate and institutions establish. So the, the very basis of that would be living wage, what I mentioned before, in terms of usually the people who work should be, should be paid enough to live, but above all, regional banks, vocational education, as well as university education, and the representation of workers on the boards of companies so that there can be some form of strategic negotiation between labour and capital in terms of those development. So an internationalist agenda that's not exclusively redistributionist, external redistribution, but looks at the balance of power and the existence of local institutions that can mediate 
and, and effect change. That's that's vital. And in terms of you know your, your question, these are the political choices that confront us. It's not exclusively, as you said, technologically determined. We have pursued policies that absolutely benefit the educated and, and the. And, and, the, and the wealthy. We have viewed social mobility as essentially moving as far away as possible as you can from your mum and your obligations. You know, we've had very um, fixed patterns of these things. And I think it's vital that we assert that there is a future in the country. That's what I meant with the schools, the, the universities, that there are strategic decisions you can make that can benefit meaningful, productive work. There's changes in corporate governance law you can make so that the strategy affirms in terms of investment. And above all, in terms of the City of London, you know, that there has to be a form of accountability of finance capital. And we have to do that within the corporate structures of the firm. But also, very importantly, as we were at the London School, how is it that the most ancient democratic institution in our country, a thousand, uh, two thousand, well, what is it? Yeah, God, it's, it's very old. It was established um, um, two thousand years ago. The Corporation of the City of London, with continuous democratic elections, is completely dominated by capital. Me and the rest of London live effectively in a shanty town called the Greater London Authority. So one very good way of resisting the domination of capital would be to democratise all of London and to, and to turn it into a city. So we've got to hold capital accountable is, is the vital way of having genuine political changes that can benefit working people, which I think is basically the point of labour. Yeah, um, I think the rest of the world, um, see, I think technology, there used to be a lag, and it was a lag of communications, it was a lag of um, uh, other things between the invention of a technology and its diffusion. Now there's no lag. And China, and China is, is automating just as fast as we are. And um, it's partly through offshoring, but partly through indigenous processes. Um, the point about uh, the, it's, it's, co it's cost cutting it's cost cutting once the investment in machines have been made they don't cost any money to run uh, unlike human beings um, therefore you can exploit machines um, much more effectively than you can exploit humans um, so I mean the, the and, and, and of course technology isn't I'm not a technological determinism technology is under human control it's under the control of people who want to make a lot of money out of it <laughs> um, so uh, the power issue has to be faced yep. um, on the hollowing out of middle class jobs that is, that is how um, technology has now penetrated deep into a sector professional sector of, of hitherto personal services that were supposed to be immune from it and I think the next phase of things in education will be teachers will be abolished eventually or, or teachers in the form we know them you know before classes interacting with students it'll all be digitally done and of course the labor saving in that is huge so I still think there is a big problem um, of making um, jobs central to the future. And I don't yet think Morris has got to the heart of it. Um, but I haven't got to the heart of the politics of it either. I mean, I accept that. I don't know how one's going to change things. Before we thank our speakers, I need to remind you of two things. One, no smoking in the building. <laughs> 
I can wait. To, uh, patience is a virtue. <laughs> and to um, Robert's book, um, How Much is Enough, is uh, for sale uh, right as you walk out. And he will stay behind here on the podium for a little while and is happy to sign um, any of your copies. With this, thank, join me in thanking them. Thank you.